1: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
0: For 27 years, Sally Yates was a highly regarded federal prosecutor, U.S. attorney, and ultimately deputy attorney general. But she burst into the national consciousness during the 10 days that she served as acting attorney general at the beginning of the Trump administration when she refused to defend the president's travel ban, and subsequently when it was revealed that she had warned the White House counsel about the vulnerability of their national security advisor, Michael Flynn. I sat down this week with Sally Yates for my Axe Files on CNN TV show. Here is the full conversation. Sally Yates, it's so good to be with you. You've spent so much of your life in rooms just like this, in courtrooms. You come from a long line of lawyers. We'll talk about that a little later. But uh, what does the rule of law mean to you? How do you define that, uh, this principle that that you so embrace?
1: Yeah. You know, you're right. I I do... um come from a long line of lawyers, and the concept of the rule of law is something I grew up around, and I think sort of boiled down to its essence. It's the concept that our laws apply equally to everyone and that no one is above the law and that everyone is entitled to equal protection, that the laws aren't used as a sword to go after anybody's enemies or as a shield to protect oneself. Are one's friends.
0: So that brings us to this momentous moment, and we actually uh, we actually chat here in a week that had a lot of developments. Uh, what do you make of the president's demand of the Justice Department that they investigate, essentially investigate the investigation mm-hmm. of that involves his campaign and perhaps him?
1: Yeah, well, this has really taken the assault on the rule of law to a new level. Um, really, from the beginning of this presidency. Um, President Trump has not observed the the time-honored norm that's been in place, um, at least since Watergate, that there should be a real division between the Department of Justice and the White House. Um, It would certainly, DOJ is part of the executive branch. We all recognize that. But for the public to have confidence that the law is not being used in a political way, Um, Presidents in both parties have recognized that those decisions really need to be left to the people at the Department of Justice. And there have been, you know, incidents in the past from calling, for example, um, Attorney General Sessions and trying to get him to drop the criminal case on Sheriff Arpaio, to repeatedly calling for the investigation or prosecution of his former political rival. Um, But this took it a step further. Because he didn't just opine, he actually directed in the language of I hereby, I think it was I hereby direct in the tweet. And, you know, that does take things to a different and more dangerous level, I think, in, in trying to inject himself.
0: Yeah, I in, think it was I hereby demand. Demand. And okay. what yeah. he has said and what the people around him have said and some of his defenders in Congress have said is that he has that right as the executive that the Justice Department is under his aegis and that there may be some norms around uh, that grew up after Watergate, Mm -hmm. but there's nothing that explicitly uh... prohibits him from ordering the justice department to do anything
1: well but but i don't think we should think of norms as something that are less important than our laws uh... you know the norms are really the fabric that holds the whole democracy together and without that things start falling apart and so for example here Um, Does he have the legal authority? Perhaps so. I I don't know that people really would challenge that. But we also have always relied upon the good faith and good character of people who are holding these offices. And just because you can doesn't mean you should. And here it's even a step beyond a a dangerous point because it's not just directing a criminal investigation or to stop one of anyone. Directly relates to his campaign. Um, that's truly unprecedented.
0: Now, what he implies, and this is the latest chapter in this back and forth, is that there was a there was a politicizing during 2016, and the decision to send uh, a uh, uh, an informant, a a, a, a a confidential source, to meet with. Uh, some people who had been advising his campaign amounted to sending spies into his campaign. You were there uh, at that time, and I know there's a limit to what you can say, but how do you react to that, the implication that spies were sent in at the direction of the Obama administration?
1: Yeah, well, you're right. It's under investigation now, and I think I have to leave it to this Department of Justice and FBI to make decisions about what information they're going to publicly release. So I can't really comment on, on that specific well, on allegation. The specifics, but yeah. what about
0: the general sense yeah. that, uh, uh, that this was a politically inspired uh, investigation?
1: Now, I'm, I'm, again, I'm not going to speak to this specific one, but I will say this, is that look, I was with DOJ for 27 years, and I can tell you that the men and women of the Department of Justice take the responsibility very seriously. Um, investigations there are done based on the facts and the law and not based on politics and I'm confident that that will be the result of this investigation as well.
0: A lot of that seems to rest on your successor, Rod Rosenstein, who's now the Deputy Attorney General and because General Sessions has had to recuse himself, Rosenstein is making all of the decisions relative to this investigation. What would it mean if the President uh, were to fire Rosenstein?
1: You know, I think that that's something that folks haven't focused on in the same way that they have focused on um, how dangerous it would be if Bob Mueller were fired. Um, you're right, Rod Rosenstein, as the person overseeing the special counsel here, has control over a lot of things. He has control over the scope of the investigation. Um, Bob Mueller has to come to him before taking any significant steps, which includes a search warrant or returning any indictments. He has control over what information could be made public and whether information is presented to Congress. Um, A backdoor way to try to choke the life out of the special counsel investigation could be through trying to replace Rod Rosenstein and and putting someone in there who would do what what the president wanted him to do. The
0: president uh, forced something of a a confrontation this week over how much information the Justice Department would give Congress about this confidential source and the Justice Department has been fighting this for months. Uh, there apparently was a meeting at the White House at which some sort of accommodation was reached where there would be a meeting at the White House with the Chief of Staff and leaders of Congress and some from the Justice Department FBI to share some of that uh, information, highly classified information. What was your reaction to that?
1: You know I think that Rod Rosenstein is trying to strike a balance here between diffusing the situation and protecting the interest of the department and the rule of law, and you know, I don't know all of the facts of this, and so I kind of feel like it's not a great idea for his predecessor to be second guessing um, those guess kind the of question decisions. is, Does it
0: create issues for his successor if a precedent is set that what had been standard practice right. for for all these uh, years is now cast aside, and Congress can? then demand to see uh, highly classified information relative to ongoing investigations and sources and methods.
1: Well, and that's something you always have to think about. Look, the the policies and practices of the department are there for a reason. Um, They guide DOJ in in high-profile, perilous times. Um, and so you, you do have to be concerned about the precedent that it sets next time um, someone makes a demand like that. At the same time, though, um, uh, you know, you can't be so rigid that you don't make any allowances for, for special circumstances. And, again, I don't know what all of the facts are here, so I, I'm not going to
0: second-guess that decision. Do you think the president's trying to force Rosenstein out to make a decision on a matter of principle that he, he can't, uh, carry through on an order uh, of the White House?
1: I don't know that he's trying to do that. It sure has every appearance of that. You know, it feels like he's marched him up to the guillotine several times now, um, only to then then um, walk him away. And um, it's got to be really hard to do your job in, in those kind of circumstances.
0: You just had, uh, as we speak today, members of Congress, uh, supporters of the president's uh, introducing a resolution, uh, essentially yeah. accusing the Justice Department and the FBI of, uh, of malfeasance mm-hmm. and uh, calling for a second uh, counsel. Uh, what, what impact does that have on, on the Justice Department, on, uh, the, on Rosenstein, on the people who are on the line in these investigations, Bob Mueller?
1: Yeah, well, just imagine. Um, if you're there and you're trying to do your job, and whether you're Rod Rosenstein or whether you're one of the line people at DOJ, who is really subjected to what seems like sometimes, you know, the daily criticisms from the President of the United States, or in this instance, from some members of Congress who are demanding an investigation of the Trump-appointed folks at DOJ and FBI, um, that's that is not an easy environment to do your work. These are tough jobs to begin with that makes it a whole lot harder. You know, that being said, though, I've known a lot of these people for many years. Mm -hmm. I know how dedicated they are to trying to do the right thing. And, you know, that doesn't mean everybody's always gonna agree with DOJ's decisions on things. That's fair enough, but I believe that the people at the Department of Justice, as difficult as it is, are gonna try to let that stuff roll off their back and continue to focus on what the law requires and what the facts show and to try to just call it like
0: they see it. I, um, I'm one of, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one of the things that has been raised, and this was sort of a central finding of the House Intelligence uh, Committee report, was that somehow a, a FISA warrant was improperly uh, uh, sought and awarded based on uh, nondisclosure of information as to what the source of some of the intelligence was. You signed off on uh, some of that. Uh, any response to that and the notion that uh, somehow this warrant was based on that information and that information alone?
1: Well, um, much of that remains classified and is under investigation now, so well, I really can't come can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get into parsing between that. You know, I don't have a clear list of what is and what isn't classified there. I think that's being reviewed by the inspector general. i um, I'm a rules girl. I'm going to follow that rule and, and let them finish their investigation. How much
0: time did you spend uh, when these investigations are, were unfolding, both the Clinton and the uh, uh, and the Russia probe, thinking about uh, the implications of of them and trying to balance interests and uh, you know how much mm-hmm. caution did it it cause you to uh, apply?
1: Well, look, I. I I'm a public corruption prosecutor. That's what I did for many, many years when I was an assistant United States attorney. And whether you're talking about a presidential election or whether you're talking about a local sheriff's race, the Department of Justice is always very sensitive to taking actions that can impact elections. You're always very sensitive to taking an action that a political opponent might try to use um, in the course of an election, and you want to make sure you're not being used in that way. So, even in you know lower-level local races, that's something that guides mm-hmm. DOJ. So you can imagine if you're talking about issues that are on the national stage, um, you are hyper-focused on those issues as well, because the you know you don't want to have to be unfair and to have information used inappropriately, and you also want to make sure that the public continues to have confidence in the Department of Justice as well. And
0: that obviously raises the question about uh, about Jim Comey and the FBI uh, yeah. acting 12 days before the 2016 election. That would mm-hmm. seem to violate that principle.
1: It does, and, and there's an IG investigation of that as well, of uh, Director Comey's actions with respect to that letter as well as the July press conference. And, so I'm not going to talk about that either until that's over.
0: He did say in his book that he asked you uh, uh, to sign off, you and the attorney general, I guess mostly you, to sign off on the letter and that you edited the letter.
1: Um, I, I don't think that's accurate, but we'll just have to wait for the IG report to come out. Yeah.
0: So uh, you talk about how this relentless hammering by the president and his, uh, and his supporters on has on the, the Justice Department employees, on the mm-hmm. FBI employees. It also has an impact on the public. Mm-hmm. And one thing we've seen is this tremendous polarization in attitudes toward our justice system and particularly the FBI, uh, because of the pre- President has enormous power with his tweets, uh, with his amplifiers in the media. Um, how much damage does this do? this, this sort of partisanization of attitudes toward uh, toward the Justice Department, toward the FBI, And what are the ramifications of that?
1: You know it's hard to quantify that. Um, but DOJ and the FBI really rely on public confidence to be able to do their jobs. When FBI agents go knocking on somebody's door because they need to they need information, uh, there's a crime they're investigating the folks answering that door need to trust the agents that are on the other side. When prosecutors go into court and are trying a case, you need for the jury to trust that the information that you're presenting is accurate. They test it, of course, through cross-examination and otherwise, but there needs to be a basic level of trust there. And That's one of the things that really concerns me here is that there's really no way to quantify that. this has ramifications far beyond how people may feel on one side of the aisle or the other on the Russia investigation. This goes really to our entire criminal justice system.
0: Well, in fact, the president uh, took the opportunity to uh, hammer the FBI around the Parkland shootings mm-hmm. uh, as yeah. seems as part of his larger effort to uh, discredit uh, discredit the FBI. I mean, do you think that it it you, say, you seem to be suggesting that it endangers uh, some investigations. That it could make them harder, that it could discourage people from coming forward. I suppose mm-hmm. uh, demonizing people in minority communities, in the Muslim community, sure. could have that same effect in, in some of those investigations.
1: Yeah. You know, I was um, talking with an AUSA in Atlanta a few weeks ago, and she told me about she was trying a case, and um, the FBI agent was there with her, and her parents had come um to see the first time and the agent introduced herself to her parents and said, you know, I'm with the FBI. I'm one of the good ones. You know, the fact that she felt the need to say that really just broke my heart because, you know, I've worked with FBI agents for many, many years and no organization is perfect. I'm not suggesting that, but I know those folks. I know how hard working they are and how how seriously they really take their responsibilities there. So to have to for her to have to say I'm one of the good ones um, that showed me that it has that it's having an effect on folks
0: So there. much of this polarization has infected uh... both sides of the debate to the point where you have people uh, who are opposed to the president uh... sort of expecting that Bob Mueller is going to come back with a uh... with indictments with mm-hmm. some sort of uh... uh report implicating the president and will be disappointed and maybe unaccepting if uh... if it doesn't and then on the other side if he does come back with such a report people saying uh... this is sort of a backdoor coup mm-hmm. um,
1: yeah I mean, that worries me too i mean when you know i hear that same thing sometimes and um, you know none of us should be hoping that the president conspired with the russians to impact the election and none of us should be hoping for an indictment. It seems to me what we should all hope for and expect and demand is that Bob Mueller have the time and and the opportunity that he needs to get to the bottom of it. If there's more there, Mueller ought to find it and we ought to find out about it. And if there's not, we need to know that, too, and we should be willing to accept that as well.
0: So I had a little contact with him when he was the FBI director, just when he briefed the president on some major event. Mm-hmm. Um, and he struck me as sort of from central casting. Yeah. Uh, but very, we don't know much about Bob Mueller, even though he's the FBI director for, mm-hmm. for, for years and years. You work closely with him. Uh, talk a little bit about him and your perceptions of him and how he must be processing all of this well I
1: think your perception is probably right and look I I certainly scared the hell out of me I didn't say a (laughs) word when he was in the room Um, he's a you know just the facts ma'am kinda guy um, and I know that that dates me um, to use that expression. Not to me, but okay, we'll yes, do it. Yeah. Um, but he is—I mean, he is the quintessential G-man prosecutor. He, you know, you've probably heard the story about how he had left the Department of Justice and gone to private practice and um, wanted back in, and so he calls Eric Holder, who was then the Deputy Attorney General. No, no, he was he a, was US, the, a attorney U.S. Attorney in, in or, DC in DC. DC during the time when violent crime was really through the roof, and wants to, to be a prosecutor again and goes on the line to do homicide cases where he's you know, known for answering the phone, Mueller homicide, um, because he was that into the, the ethos of the Department of Justice and wanting to do good and wanting to make a contribution. And so he's a straight arrow kind of guy.
0: He, um, he's been painted, you know. The the, the probe itself has been because Mueller is sort of known as a Republican. He certainly mm-hmm. was a Republican appointee, but there are people on his team who have given contributions to Democratic candidates, mm-hmm. and there was the two FBI agents who were mm-hmm. who were found to be texting each other and, with anti-Trump mm-hmm. conversations. Um, has has that been uh, is that a fair depiction uh, of? of that group. You know, I I know that your husband, for example, ran for Congress some years ago Mm -hmm. when you were a prosecutor. Um, uh, Should that have disqualified you from prosecuting public corruption cases?
1: No, you know, what I found was is that when I was doing corruption cases, is that there are always going to be folks who want to ascribe motives to you in those cases.
0: Including uh, racism in your yeah, in your uh, case, the, because a lot of these cases took place in Atlanta, including against the, the mayor of Atlanta.
1: Yeah, you know, I prosecuted Democrats and Republicans. I'm not the only one. Prosecutors all over the country mm-hmm. prosecute uh, folks on both sides of the aisle, even though they most likely have a, a political preference themselves. You know, people just don't seem to understand that, That's just not how DOJ works, that you put all of that aside and you call cases as you see them. And even if you were to have an errant prosecutor, um, the machinery is such that it would be really hard for one person to be able to drive some type of politically motivated prosecution when you have agents and other lawyers and U.S. attorney and Maine justice and all involved in these
0: it things. It is kind of a time. I remember in the 90s when the Ken Starr investigation was going on and there was the same kind of thing directed there that these were ideologically driven people, they mm-hmm. were uh, partisans and so on. So this isn't a new uh, tactic but will it at the end of the day uh, make it harder uh, if Mueller comes back with some significant findings that implicate the president or people around him?
1: Well, you know, I remember when he was first named and it was met with universal acclaim. You know, Republicans and Democrats were saying that he's just the right guy to be doing this. I'm not real sure what changed from that point until now, except maybe there are results of that investigation that some people don't like.
0: You know, people have said uh, the president... Uh, and Rudy Giuliani and others, that a year is long enough, this has become the mantra, which marked the first year anniversary yeah. of that. How long do these probes generally take when you're working on a complex uh, investigation like this?
1: They take a very long time, and what many people probably wouldn't have any way of recognizing, this has moved at a lightning pace for an investigation as complex of, as this to have already produced the number of charges and guilty pleas that it has is really remarkable. You know, you're sending subpoenas for documents. You have to wait until you get those back. You then get more documents. You subpoena witnesses. It's a very long process, and they've obviously been then really pushing hard to get this done quickly.
0: Uh, Why should people care? I mean, there's so much uh, back and forth going on right now that it seems almost like, the genesis of all this has been lost in the political yeah. back and forth. Why is this important?
1: And, and that's one of the things that's concerned me is that, you know, as we talk about Bob Mueller and whether he's a Democrat or a Republican, we all seem to be losing that Russia interfered in our election. And there hasn't been a whole lot of talk about what we're doing to make sure that they don't do it again. You know, this is not an investigation into some tangential issue. It's about a foreign adversary, not just attempting, but actually being able to interfere in our election. That's, you know, that's serious stuff. And it doesn't matter what, what side of the aisle you're on. It seems that all of us ought to want to get to the bottom of that.
0: We've seen a number of indictments and some guilty pleas, people, some close to the president. Um, you work closely with President Obama on pardons. Mm-hmm. Um, And we've seen two pardons, high-profile pardons under the Trump administration, one for Sheriff Arpaio in Arizona and the other for Scooter Libby. Mm -hmm. Um, Those were not, uh, talk about the process that you worked on uh, with the president. I guess he consulted with you on a regular basis on these pardons because it was reported that there was no consultation with the Justice Department on these two pardons.
1: Yeah, you know the president does have really very broad pardon Unlimited. authority, right? And I worked with President Obama primarily on the Clemency Initiative, which was the initiative to reduce um, the sentences for you know, lower-level nonviolent drug drug offenders who were sentenced under outdated laws. But there is a process that the Department of Justice follows, where there's a pardon application that comes in, you review it, you go back to the prosecuting attorneys, you see what the um, what the conduct has been since the time of conviction, that's the process that's normally followed.
0: These were It's not
1: required, but it's the process the that's R. normally The Arpaio and Libby
0: pardons were uh, certainly popular with an element of the president's mm-hmm. base, mm-hmm. Uh, but other people have said that uh, they may have been signals to people who are uh, either implicated or might be implicated in this probe that yeah. that he has this pardon power. Did you read it that way?
1: You know, it's hard for me to know what he intended. I think the fact that some people see that um, is, is, is important enough right there, whether that was actually what was intended or not.
0: He called Michael Cohen, apparently, the morning of his visit to when the, the raids uh, first took place uh, against him, mm-hmm. uh, and that was the day that the Scooter Libby uh, uh, pardon mm. took place. What, what do you think about that fact pattern?
1: Don't know what they said. So, you, know. uh,
0: you are a lawyer, aren't
1: you? I am a lawyer. Yes, yes. You
0: can't, you can't <laughs> Call ad- me
1: crazy. I want to know the facts before I have an opinion.
0: The, uh, the Cohen situation where he, uh, Rod Rosenstein, approved, apparently enraged the president, approved uh, search warrants of Cohen's offices, homes, his devices, and so mm-hmm. on, subpoenas uh, for those. Uh, search warrants for those. You were the one who had to sign off on those things. What is the standard for that, uh, for going after someone who is representing or has represented mm-hmm. someone who's also the subject of a probe?
1: Well, look, that goes through a lot of levels of review at the Department of Justice. Um, to be take that kind of action with respect to any lawyer's home or office, much less the lawyer for the president of the United States. And there, you know, are various requirements for a search warrant period in terms of having probable cause to believe that there's evidence of a crime there. But to, to go after that for a lawyer, you look at things like a crime fraud exception, whether there's evidence that the lawyer perhaps was involved um, with the client and in the crime. There, there are various exceptions there, but I, I can assure you that it was reviewed really carefully before they... Took and the Rosenstein,
0: step. Presumably understood what the implications of that would be in terms of how the president would react, how this would be sure. positioned, and so on.
1: I would. I mean, I think most anybody would.
0: He's a cautious guy.
1: Right. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let me take you back to those uh, halcyon eleven days when you were acting uh, uh-huh. attorney general at the you beginning. You just gave me an extra uh, day. I think it
1: was only ten. But oh, <laughs> is that right? Yeah.
0: Well. In, a, in any case, they, they were immortalized yeah. um, because they were very, very active. Um, on, on January 26th of 2017, you went to see the White House counsel, Don McGahn, and you gave, you went there to warn him about uh, something relative to Mike Flynn, the then National Security Advisor. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. Well, um, this was in leading up to the inauguration and then after that, there had been a number of public statements that were coming out of the White House and most recently from the Vice President that um, General Flynn had not had any communications with the Russian ambassador about sanctions. Um, you know, we're a year out, but at the time it was it was a big thing uh, about the sanctions and as well as whether or not there was an effort to essentially tell the Russians, don't worry about those sanctions. and um, There were a number of statements coming both from Rance Priebus, from Sean Spicer, and then as I mentioned at the very end from the Vice President saying he had talked with General Flynn and General Flynn had assured him that there had been no discussion about sanctions. It was essentially Christmas greetings and setting up a meeting, et cetera. Well, we knew that not to be the case and we were concerned about that on a couple of levels. We're concerned that the Vice President was misleading the American people and we presumed he didn't know that. But we were also concerned that we weren't the only ones who knew that the information that Mike Flynn had provided the vice president and others, to, to give that to the American people wasn't
0: true. Meaning Ambassador Kislyak and the Russians knew right. what was said on that conversation? That they
1: would know as well, and that that created a compromise situation where the Russians could use that as leverage, either subtly or directly. With the incoming national security advisor. I think that that
0: it was a couple of days before you went over there that General Flynn sat down with the FBI uh, for an interview. He's mm -hmm. since pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI, Mm -hmm. I think, in that interview. Uh, So you knew that as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you share that information with Don McGahn?
1: I told him that he had been interviewed but did not tell him about the substance of the interview.
0: Do you think that the implication was that he did not that he wasn't truthful there?
1: Um, I think, and I'm trying to be careful about what I've testified to and what I haven't because I don't want to reveal things that still... I just figure on
0: this one he's pleaded guilty. Yeah, already. yeah,
1: and so it seems pretty clear he wasn't wasn't truthful there, but...
0: So here's my question for you. Uh-huh. Uh, you sat there for... Now, you, we'll get to the you, the end of your 10-day uh, 10 tenure mm-hmm. <laughs> as acting attorney general, but um, you it was several weeks before... Uh, General Flynn was relieved of his position as a national security advisor. Mm-hmm. Presumably, he kept on functioning in that role, was uh, privy to top-secret information and so on. Were you surprised that the White House didn't act? What happened was the Washington Post disclosed that you had had this meeting. Mm-hmm. I presume you didn't leak that story. No, I did not. The, the Washington Post had this story uh, that you had this meeting, and then three hours later, General Flynn resigned. Right.
1: I think we all were surprised. Um, Now, when I had the second meeting, there were two meetings. The second one was on the 27th, and then I left DOJ on the 30th. And so I didn't know what was going on in communications between the Department of Justice and the White House after the 30th. But yeah, I mean, because we made it really clear when we went to see them that we were giving them this information so that they could take action.
0: Uh, And no action was taken until Mm -hmm. it became public.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: And what did that suggest to you?
1: You know, I was um, certainly surprised by that, kind of befuddled as to, to what's going on here. But at the same time, as I said, I wasn't there after January 30th, so I didn't really know if perhaps there was some interaction going on that I just didn't know about.
0: Did they ask you for the, any of the underlying material, including the FBI interview?
1: They asked us for the underlying evidence, and we agreed to give them that. And did you? that was on Friday. I called on um, that Monday to let him know that we had it available and ready for them to review and Monday was my last day.
0: Yeah, that wasn't pre-planned that Monday was your last day. No. We should talk about that. Um, in your role as Acting Attorney General uh, it came to your attention that there was this travel ban that the mm-hmm. White House wanted to put into uh, effect mm-hmm. and uh, you, you weren't consulted on it. How did you learn about that travel ban?
1: I was actually in the car um, late Friday afternoon on the 27th on my way to go back to Atlanta uh, for my husband was being honored in an event that weekend, and so I was going back for that dinner. And I got a call from my principal deputy um, telling me, you're not going to believe this, but I just read in the New York Times that the president has, has signed some sort of travel ban. Um, and we didn't know anything about it. And so, you know, I immediately got on my how, head How unusual started. was that in
0: your experience? It's
1: really unusual, really unusual. I mean, normally for something like this, not just would the Department of Justice be consulted and be part of it, but if you have a national security purpose for something, you would consult with the national security agencies. And none of that happened.
0: And, and then what did you do?
1: Well, we spent the weekend trying to figure out what is this thing, what are they trying to accomplish, who's included in it and who's not, because we're on travel ban 3.0 now, but the the travel ban on which I made my decision was was obviously the first one. And it included, for example, lawful permanent residents and people with valid visas. Literally folks were midair when the president signed the travel ban and could not get back into the country. And so we spent the weekend, again, trying to to wrap our arms around who was in and who was out and what the White House was trying to accomplish. Did
0: you ask the White House what they were trying to accomplish? Yeah. Folks
1: were, were, there was a lot of discussion going on back and forth. And then we were also reviewing the challenges that were coming in because we had to have folks in court the very next morning, that Saturday morning, defending. Um, And so we took the position we would defend on procedural grounds only until we could wrap our arms around the substance of this. and
0: What does that mean on procedural grounds? That
1: means if, if someone was admitted, for example, they, that their case would be mooted out, that we didn't take a position on the constitutionality yet. But on Monday, and we're reading the cases, challenges are being filed, and you know we're all online trying to read the cases. It's so different because DOJ is a very hierarchical organization, and normally by the time something would have gotten to me, It had been through lots of review, and all the cases have been summarized, and they're pretty memos that are done to tee up the issues. There was no time for any of that. Um, I'm just trying to read the raw cases. And then Monday, we gathered everyone there in the conference room, um, all the Trump appointees as well as as the career people, um, to talk this through again of what the challenges were and what our defenses would be.
0: And was there... Uh, heated debate between the Trump appointees and the the career people and the, some of the holdovers.
1: I, I can't disclose the the actual discussions there because that's deliberations within DOJ. I can say that there was not a consensus on this. And
0: uh, and you made your decision. How did you how did how did you come to that decision?
1: Well, we and talked the decision that, was
0: that you weren't going to defend this thing.
1: Right, right. You know, we talked through the challenges and what the defenses were and. What I came down to here is that it was clear, and we were going to have to do it the next day. We had to take a position on the constitutionality the next day, that to defend the travel ban, we were going to have to argue that it had absolutely nothing to do with religion. And that was in the face of the statements that the president had made both on the campaign trail and since the election about his intent to effectuate a Muslim ban. And I remember one of them particularly being when someone challenged whether that was lawful, His saying, well, we'll call it territories then. And it seemed like that's exactly what this was. And um, that put us in a quandary here because that would put the Department of Justice in the position of having to advance a pretext that there was a reason other than religion for for the travel ban. And and I didn't think the Department of Justice should ever be advancing a pre- This goes
0: to that central question of what the role of the Department of Justice is. What, what's mm-hmm. the precedent for attorneys general or acting attorneys general uh, resigning rather than defending a policy? We know in Watergate they resigned mm-hmm. uh, uh, because they wouldn't fire the special prosecutor, but what about for uh, defending a policy or not defending a policy?
1: Yeah, I well The good news is there haven't been a lot of resignations or directions in that regard. This doesn't come up very much because normally there's communication in advance of a situation like this. And I thought about resigning. I mean, that was, you know, once I had made the decision that I didn't see how the Department of Justice could defend this and advance something that I didn't believe to be the truth, the the harder question was whether to resign or whether to direct. And... You know, I went back and forth on that. Now, but I didn't go back and forth for long. It was 72 hours from mm-hmm. when I learned about this. By you to the, the, say that you not
0: going to not defend. defend yeah.
1: Right. And, you know, I thought back to my confirmation hearing where there were several senators, including then-Senator Sessions, who were quite emphatic with me that there would be times the president might ask me to do something that was unlawful. Or I think even Senator Sessions pointed out that you know, would bring dishonor to the Department of Justice and they emphasized to me that it was my responsibility to say no.
0: That was was quite a confrontation actually. That was a very dramatic moment when Senator Sessions, now Attorney General Sessions, said, would you stand up to the president?
1: Right. I think they were thinking about a different president, but it seems the principles is is the same and they were right about that because you know, had I resigned, that would have protected my personal integrity. But it would not have protected the integrity of the Department of Justice, and I don't believe I would have been doing my job.
0: And so you directed the department not to defend, Mm -hmm. and and then someone came to you, a Trump appointee, Mm -hmm. with a memo. Mm -hmm. And who was the memo from, and and what did it say?
1: It was not from the president. It was from um, Mr... I can't remember just I can't remember his name. How's that for him? I, sh- I should have that etched in my memory right now.
0: Personnel director. Pre-
1: exactly, mm-hmm. office of presidential personnel. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and 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 how'd you? What was your reaction? Were you surprised when that happened?
1: Um, no, I wasn't. Entirely Had you ever been surprised. fired, but f- no, I've, from no, any job before? No, no. And oh, I, I mean, I couldn't say. Seem like I a was... high
0: achiever. So.
1: <laughs> um, we'll see, uh, but. Um, I wasn't entirely surprised. I mean, I I certainly recognized that there was a significant chance that the president would fire me if I did this. Um, On the other hand, I hoped that wasn't the case. I had spent 27 years at DOJ, and even though I wasn't going to be there much longer, I was just there until Senator Sessions was confirmed, but I didn't particularly want to end my time at the Department of Justice with, with being fired. So that's, I was hopeful that wouldn't happen. But when the knock on the door came, I, and the, the knock came from my principal deputy's office that adjoined mine, and normally Matt would, like, knock and walk in at the same time because we were in and out of each other's offices all day long. This, though, was a knock without coming in. And, you know, it's, it's 9 o'clock or so mm-hmm. at night, and, you know, from that...
0: Uh, kind of that a went, Grim Reaper quality to that.
1: <laughs> well, um... Yeah, I I had a sense at that moment.
0: Mm -hmm. Um. Looking back, um, a lot has been said about whether the Obama administration should have been more aggressive about uh, uh, exposing uh, the Russian interference in the election. Uh, And, you know, there was the, the, the sort of inference that maybe it wasn't done because there was an assumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win anyway. Or, but was that the right decision, do you think? Do you have second thoughts about that? I know it wasn't your decision, but right. do you have second thoughts about um, it?
1: Look, I think the administration, and I'm talking about the administration as a whole, was aggressive in trying to get to the bottom of Russian interference in the election. I think you have to be really careful when you're talking about a step then of ascribing involvement of others to that effort before you really know what the facts are.
0: So you, you, you're you comfortable with the decision that was made. Is there anything, looking back, that you say to yourself? Because I know that you okay. think about these things. You know what? We we could have done better. We should have done this differently.
1: Oh, gosh, how long do you have? I mean, uh, you, if you want to time. go back
0: the whole... we we'll <laughs> make the time.
1: No, I mean, in terms of if you're talking about the the Russia Russian... I can't really talk about that stuff, so I can't get into the facts of that. But, but look, I think anybody would... Uh, any decent lawyer would always look back and try to look for ways they could do things differently. But if you're talking about sort of core decisions that were made of which way to go on, on big directional things, uh, I'm, I'm comfortable with the decisions that I made.
0: I, I just want to return to, the, to, to one issue relative to, uh, to Jim Comey that has nothing to do with the things that you're talking to or have talked to the I. IG about, uh-huh. but it's about the book itself. Uh-huh. He published a book uh, to great uh, fanfare uh, a few weeks ago and went on a nationwide tour, and he was quite caustic in his assessment of the president, uh, very aggressive, did very well with the book, by the way, so mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a good strategy. Uh-huh. Was, it a, uh, was it a good strategy for the probe at a time when the president was trying to depict this as a vendetta against him?
1: You know, everybody has to decide for him or herself.
0: Would um, you have done it?
1: I, I, that, that's not something I'm comfortable with. Um, but Why? It, it's just not consistent with, with how I would operate. But, um, you know, you were, I'm not If you were gonna,
0: prosecuting the case, would you have welcomed uh, that? Uh,
1: look, I, you're, you're coming at it from every angle here. I know, and I'm I just got not going to. I know that you're good at this. <laughs> um, you know, I. I don't want to make, I don't want to pass judgment on somebody else's decision of how they're going to operate. It's not, it wouldn't have been my choice, but, um, but he had to make his own decision.
0: I give up. I'm not going to pursue this. <laughs> um, I want to talk about your career. You mentioned 27 years uh, at uh, DOJ. One of the cases that you prosecuted there, in addition to these very high profile uh, public corruption cases, was the Olympic bombing. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting to me for two reasons. One is that you ultimately prosecuted the person responsible of what amounted to an act of domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. But there was also someone who was at first thought to be a suspect. And to me, that was sort of the bookending of the... And it, and it spoke to the power for of the criminal justice system for good and, and for inadvertently doing mm-hmm. things that can really damage people's lives.
1: Right, and that's... You know, that's something that... Richard Jewell was the guy
0: who was originally suspected.
1: Right. And look, prosecutors have a tremendous amount of power. And even when it's not in a high-profile matter like that, you know, the mere fact of an investigation can change someone's life forever. And that's why, to me making sure that you have people in those jobs who really take that responsibility seriously, who recognize, and I know this sounds really corny, that the job is not to get convictions, but the responsibility is to seek justice and to do it in an aggressive way because your job is to hold people accountable when they violate the law, but to do it in a fair way and that takes into account the impact that it has on their lives and the lives of their families as well.
0: It's a hard thing in a modern media environment where there's this hunger for information and sometimes that information isn't good Mm -hmm. but it can travel very very quickly. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah and this is you know certainly even more so now with social media and otherwise. Um, Things don't stay quiet for long.
0: It's interesting this issue of criminal justice reform. There are Mm -hmm. people on the right and left who seem invested in it. Um, The Attorney General less so uh... now are we are we moving forward or back and how much is going on at the states and at the national level on this issue
1: you know this is one of the few issues in which there really is a bipartisan consensus that we need to adjust how we're approaching criminal justice and you know some people come at it from a purely fiscal standpoint that we can't afford to continue to incarcerate people at the levels that we are right now. You know, 5% of the world's population, yet we have 25% of its prisoners. Um, I I think most people recognize that the lock them all up and throw away the key mentality of the 80s and, and early 90s is not only not the most effective law enforcement, but it also just simply is unjust, that there are people serving more time than is necessary for public safety reasons. But certainly the Attorney General has a different perspective on that. And so I don't think you're going to see the Department of Justice leading the way now on criminal justice reform. But I do think it's taken root in the states and that regardless of DOJ's position, that, that states, red states and blue states alike, all over the country, are really enacting meaningful criminal justice reform. Everything from alternatives to incarceration to drug treatment to... Um, sentencing reform, to to importantly looking at reentry and prison reform. That's absolutely essential as well. So, I think it's taken root in the states. It's going to continue, but perhaps not at the same pace as it would have um, with leadership from DOJ.
0: You you yourself, uh, as a young lawyer, uh, worked on a, a case of a, a woman whose who, whose land was ex- yeah. expropriated. That that and that was very much. Uh, an issue of it seemed like racial injustice. Talk about that and the impact that it had on you.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that probably will be the most meaningful case I ever have. It was when I was a young associate um, at King and & Spaulding and there was a, a, a woman who had come to the firm years before in what they call the Saturday Lawyer Program, where you could come and get free legal advice. And she was from Barra County, which Judge Bell, Griffin Bell, who was here at the firm, Um, knew my father and knew that he was from Barra County and um, I'll try to make a long story shorter. Her family had been one of the earliest African-American landowners in Barra County. They had 92 acres and six acres of it had essentially been taken through a subdivision that was being built now and they were able to appropriate that property because my client's family hadn't filed their deed and they didn't file their deed which was written on a piece of cloth from back in the 30s that my client's mother carried, folded up, down inside of her dress as she worked the fields every day. She carried that deed around with her because the property meant that much to them and because they didn't trust the white court system then and for very good reason didn't trust the white court system. They didn't want to go give the court their deed so they held on to it. But by doing that, that meant there was another deed with a survey from an adjoining landowner that was filed that essentially appropriated six acres of their property. Um, well, fast forward to the 80s then, and now there's going to be a subdivision built, and, and our clients looked and said, What's, you know, why are they doing this on our property? And so I filed a case using a, a old property theory, adverse possession, which is if you've been using the property openly and notoriously for seven years, then it's yours, even if you haven't filed the deed. And the way they'd use the property was by washing their clothes in the stream. And uh, another landowner knew that because they were making moonshine from that same stream in a different place. And so when we tried the case... Um, I'd never even seen a trial before. I had to go over the week before and watch how a jury was selected because I had no idea um, how this happened. But Charlie Kerbo, who was then with the firm, and had been... We should
0: point out was a major figure in the Carter administration, as was Griffin Bell, who was the Attorney General.
1: Absolutely. Mr. Kerbo, just one of the great people of all time. You're right. He was, I think, known as President Carter's one-man kitchen cabinet. Yes. Uh Um, He came on this case with me and he went over to Barrack County and he walked the fields with me and he sat there on the front porch drinking iced tea trying to get witnesses to testify and he went with me when I tried the case. And when we tried that, um, it was before Batson, which is the rule that prevents lawyers from striking jurors because of their race. It was before it applied to civil cases and this was a civil case. And so the opposing lawyer struck all the African-Americans from the
0: jury. So it was an all-white jury?
1: All-white jury all-white courtroom. My clients were the only African-Americans in the courtroom. Everybody in there knew everybody on the other side. They'd used the lawyers, they'd used the surveyors, they knew the property developers, all-white jury. They had this lawyer in me who had no clue what she was doing. Um, But yet that jury returned a verdict for our client. And I can tell you right now it wasn't because of any great lawyering I did. It was absolutely in spite of me not because of me, but that actually is part of what instilled in me a real belief in our justice system, that those jurors were given an opportunity to do the right thing, and they embraced it. They wanted to do the, the right thing. how you when the verdict was read? I, I'm getting a little teary now talking <laughs> about it. I probably got teary then, too. Yeah, yeah I mean, it was um, incredibly moving, but also to see my client's reaction to this. They never thought in a million years that this same court system that they had so mistrusted that they wouldn't even file their deed was then going to return a verdict for them on an adverse possession theory to yeah. get their property back. So, yeah.
0: um, You and I share something that's, that's an unhappy thing. Uh, my dad committed suicide, uh, and I know your dad did as well. He had a very mm-hmm. successful career in the law, on the bench. Um, and yeah. I raise it because what I, have, having not talked about it for 30 years, mm-hmm. I realized the reason I didn't talk about it was the same reason my dad didn't get the help mm-hmm. that he needed. And, and mm-hmm. it's important to recognize this isn't a character deficiency. This is an illness. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to ask you about that and, and the impact that's had on you and how that has caused you to view the criminal justice system, because there are... The sheriff of Cook County told me he's got the largest jail in the country, that he feels like he's running the world's uh, largest mental, mental health clinic because mm-hmm. so many people come in with issues. Um, so I just wanted to ask you about it.
1: Yeah. You know, I haven't talked much about it over these years. He died May 6 of 1986. Um, I will tear up. Um,
0: I'm, right, I'm right there with you. Yeah. I'm right there with you.
1: Well, wow, it's been over 30 years. Maybe this is why I have. You know, for a few reasons. Um, one, I hated for him to be defined yeah. by how he died I rather than how way. he lived. Um, and it, it also such it felt like an invasion of his privacy. But I've come over the years, I have talked about it a couple of times. And, and the reason is, is that, look, if there's anything I can do to help to erase the stigma of mental illness Um, and to encourage people to get help. I mean, my dad didn't get the help he needed because he was worried about the stigma of going and getting help. And, you know, we tried to encourage him, but, you know, I don't know that I encouraged him as much as I should have at the time. Not so much because I was worried about the stigma, but just because back then people didn't do that that much i know they yeah. should have but they didn't and it breaks my heart to think that had he just been able to get some help he could very well be alive today and know my son and you know his grandchildren I'm doing it again
0: um, no no I, I listen we we've lived parallel lives yeah. in this regard yeah. and i only raise it to tell no, people no, out by, there yeah, get I, the help you need
1: I appreciate mental that.
0: illness is an illness it, yeah. it's not a stigma it's not a mark on your character and ver- some Extraordinary people have grappled with it, some have overcome it, some have not, and often because of that. So,
1: no, and I see that as a really good thing now. I mean, that's it, to the extent that people can recognize that with help, they can lead happy, healthy lives, and you know, n- not getting that help is, is such a loss. And, now, l- yeah. Let me
0: ask you about another relative of yours, a yeah. happier...
1: Yeah. Uh, it's all right, I, I've got control now, so you can go.
0: But y- y- the story of your grandmother is really uh-huh. inspiring um, because she studied the law, but she never actually practiced it. Yeah. Talk about that and what influence that had on your life.
1: Yes, she was amazing. She was a spitfire. Um, there was nothing really warm and fuzzy about Mama, as we called her. Um, incredibly loving and devoted no question about that incredibly loving Um, as was my dad I mean I think that that Mm -hmm. ran through them I mean you know just would do anything in the world for you Um, but she was really smart and this was back in the time when you didn't have to go to law school you could what they called read law under another lawyer and she did that and she took the bar exam, and much to the surprise of her husband, my grandfather he passed. Mm. No, didn't um, know. Passed. And, but, you know, this is, is rural Georgia, you know, back in the day, 30s, 40s, um, 50s then, too. Um, and nobody's hiring a lady lawyer, um, as they were known then. And so she was a secretary to my grandfather and then to my father and, and his uncle. I mean, and my father and my uncle, um, which I've, I've often thought... She was smarter than all of them, and so it must have driven her crazy to be the one who was typing their thoughts mm-hmm. rather mm-hmm. than her own.
0: And probably refining them.
1: Oh, gosh, I'm sure she edited. <laughs> yeah, there's no question she edited, yeah.
0: We live in an interesting time in this regard and an exciting time because uh, of the Me Too movement and yeah. so on. I'm interested, you, your career has spanned several decades now. The barriers that you face, because prosecute, uh, you know, prosecutors tend to be not uh, like a warm and fuzzy kind of world.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and uh,
1: Prosecutors are people, too.
0: <laughs> okay, that sounds like a button. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, how were you received, and what kinds of barriers did you face uh, coming up as a young lawyer, as a young prosecutor?
1: You know, there weren't that many women um, in the criminal division of the U.S. Attorney's Office when I started. There were a lot of women doing civil work, but not that many in the criminal division. And I remember when I first came to the office, one of the the supervisors there didn't want me to go into the the organized crime section. He thought it would be too rough and tumble for me. So he put me in white collar, which actually I ended up loving, but um, you know, this is the kind of thing that wouldn't happen now today. And then the firm where I started, there was only one female litigation partner in the entire firm before I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, obviously very different today. Um, And then, you know, I juxtaposed that against the time I served as Deputy Attorney General under Loretta Lynch so you had, you know, two women in the top two spots at the Department of Justice and you know, I've told a story about being in a meeting in her conference room where big conference room, I don't know if you've ever been there, but Mm -hmm. big long table, chairs all around the side and and you know, we're all in there for a meeting And when we're getting up, my principal deputy looks at me and said, did you notice I was the only man in the room? And actually I had not noticed, um, which probably means I'm a lousy witness too, but I <laughs> had not noticed that. Now, that was still an unusual occurrence for him to be the only man in the room, but it's a sign that we've made progress, but there's still, there's still more to go. I
0: want to go on record saying that I actually never have been in that conference <laughs> room. And I was never over at the Justice Department, even though I was the senior advisor to the yes. president, because of the sense that those things should be separate. Right, and uh, that's the way it's supposed be to be. Mm-hmm. Now you've returned to your old law firm, mm-hmm. and you're going to do investigations. Do you expect that uh, uh, these kinds of investigations about... Um, that, that have been the subject of the Me Too movement and so on will, will be uh, part of your portfolio? And what do you hope to accomplish with that?
1: Yeah, well, I'm going to be um, engaged in what we call an independent investigations practice here. It's, you know, when there are those messy situations that come up, whether it's a, a company or a university or sports organization, where it's really important to have someone come in from the outside and to be able to give an authoritative, credible answer to what happened. You know, very similar and draws on a lot of the work I did for years as a prosecutor, both the blind and AUSA as well as U.S. Attorney and, and DAG. And certainly HR issues, Me Too issues, corporate culture issues are, are really important to organizations right now. It's essential that organizations be able to credibly respond to allegations such that when they say there's a problem or there's not, that the public and their shareholders and their employees believe them.
0: And your name comes up all the time uh, from people who, uh, who would love to see you run for public office. Um, and I know when we were together recently at the University of Chicago at the Institute of Politics there, and you were asked this question, and you basically said, I'm not saying no, but I'm not saying yes. Um, and I'm saying
1: more no than yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What?
0: What? Tell me what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I, you know, I'm flattered first that people would want me to run for office, and I obviously believe in the public service. Thing is that service. when you run
0: for public office, let me tell you, it's always best right before you
1: announce. <laughs> well, then maybe I'll stay in just a good state <laughs> then. But. Um, You know, I do believe in public service. I wouldn't have stayed at DOJ for 27 years if I didn't really believe in that. But there's a difference between public service and running for elected office. And I really kind of feel most people who do that have always had a drive to do that. And to be honest with you, it just doesn't feel like me.
0: And uh, do you see yourself going back into public service?
1: I don't know what the future may you hold preclude there. That. I wouldn't preclude that. But Would you like I, to go
0: back to the Justice Department someday and finish the work you started.
1: I'll look, who wouldn't want to do that? But um, but right now, I'm focused on on what I'm doing now. Yeah.
0: Sally Yates, it's been great to be with you. It's been great to you be you so with you as much. well.
1: Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of the Axe Files, visit cnn.com/podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.